good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to be back here in Charlotte. It's always good to come to headquarters and see what the work is doing and the progress that's being made. And certainly it's been great to be here in the last couple of days, at least, for the council meeting and, of course, the uh, ministerial conference next week. Well, I uh, do bring you greetings from you, your brethren on the other side of the earth, and uh, they certainly uh, reminded me as I ran across them to uh, send their regards to everybody here. One day we can all be together and we can meet each other, and of course some of you have had the opportunity to attend the feast in Australia, and I would encourage all of you to come down. So uh, uh, we have the space, that's for sure. You just have to let us know and, and organize in advance. I, I do want to give you a little bit of news of the work in the Australasian area. Uh, for the last uh, 10, 12 years actually, uh, the office uh, has, or the regional office has been operating out of my bedroom, garage, living room and dining room table and everywhere else. And uh, just earlier this year, we managed to purchase our own office building and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. We did have to approach the bank and get a loan, a uh, several hundred thousand dollar loan and they were very kind to us. Um, we really didn't have that much security except the building itself. But we just had a wonderful blessing in the last couple of weeks that someone paid the loan off for us. And, uh, and I just God sends the, these blessings like that, and we're just very, very grateful. So we have uh, an office down there where we now have that stability, and, and of course we'll be able to go ahead and even do much greater work uh, than we've already been doing, of course with the incredible assistance from uh, headquarters here, as you all realize. Well, I arrived here last uh, Wednesday evening. I came to headquarters via Thailand and Sri Lanka this time. So I've been away for just over two weeks. And uh, I did get an email from our deacon in Thailand yesterday making sure that uh, I would remember to pass uh, his regards on to everybody. But the people there are really keen to do a work. I arrived in Maesot, a little town up on the Burma border in Thailand, and Mempo Saw says, look, I've organized already an interview with you for the radio station here. We can put the program on and we can do advertising because everybody speaks Thai up there, but we're doing it in English. Uh, I don't say everybody speaks Thai, but uh, uh, it was a, a wonderful opportunity. I did go along to meet the station manager. And uh, even this evening, I believe, they're putting on the uh, Tomorrow's World program, the, the ones that we send out with the regular weekly sermons, and uh, they will then, during the area where we normally have the advert, they will sort of splice in or be there and actually make an announcement and saying, please contact, please phone this number, we'll be able to help you with any, any more information. So we're excited about how that is all going to uh, turn out. We haven't done anything like that there before. And uh, uh, Memposaw certainly is a very energetic uh, man. And uh, uh, even though his health is not the greatest, nevertheless, he loves God and loves the work and the truth and wants to see all of Burma and Thailand hear the gospel message. When I got to Sri Lanka last week, once again, the people there said, look, we've organized a meeting with you for the radio station here. We'd like you to meet the manager, and they want to put the program on. So we're hoping we can go ahead with those things and at least get uh, the message to uh, those areas of the world. There are billions of people in that part of the world, as you realize, and uh, we know the gospel is going to go to the whole world, and how God is going to do that, we're yet to see, but uh, we have to begin somewhere, and we are beginning certainly as small as a, a mustard seed there. 
When I was here last, or maybe the time before, um, Mr. Ames, I believe, gave me a sermonette uh, for 12 minutes, and I ended up speaking for 26 minutes, so I think he reminded me. So this time he's giving me a split sermon, so Mr. Mr. Weston may get to hear you, speak to you later, but uh, anyway, we'll uh, continue on here very quickly. From Sri Lanka, I then flew to London, and uh, there I had a meeting with the king, that is Rod King. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, uh, Mr. King has just taken up the, his new responsibilities in the UK, in the mother country, and uh, he had only been there a few days. And he uh, said, well, look, when you're coming to London, make sure we meet up and we'll come across to Charlotte together. Well, I arrived at the airport and uh, know Mr. King. And how do you find somebody in a city of 10 million people? So I'd been on the, on the flight from Bangkok and they had a documentary on penguins. Some of you may have seen that one. It was narrated by Morgan Freeman. It's really, really well worth watching. And uh, they showed the, the, um, um, the, the penguin family. When the female lays the egg, she hands it over to her husband, and then she takes off for four months. And then when she comes back, there's these hundreds of thousands of penguins. They all have to join up and meet up with each other. And the only way they can do it, they can't see properly, and the only way they do it is they talk to each other. And can you imagine 200,000 penguins chirping away, and yet they can recognize each other's sound system? And uh, it was uh, quite an quite a, quite a incredible thing. And I thought, well, here I am in London. All I have to do is try and find where Mrs. Penguin is. <laughs> and she sure to know where her husband is. So, you know, technology is amazing. You know, you've got a little thing like this and uh, dial a few numbers, and it's not till about an hour later Mr. King and I were united in, uh, in the uh, Heathrow terminals there, and uh, we were able to spend the day together in London. So um, it was good. He's getting himself settled there, and I know the work over in that part of the world is going to really appreciate his being there and his serving them as the work begins to grow. People have asked me, you know, what do I do on these long flights? And they always seem to be in the middle of the night. Um, and, and, of course, that's not the best time to sort of uh, do your main Bible study or anything like that. So fortunately, many of the airlines now have quite a selection of sort of entertainment things you can watch. And there's been, like I mentioned, there was the documentary on the penguins. I did see one on uh, space uh, travel. And they had another really good one that I watched, um, concerned pre-Adamic creation or... Um, prehistoric animals uh, over in the northeast part of the United States here, uh, particularly over in New York. I, I, I think it was called King Kong. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so some of these uh, flights can be very educational. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I do want to tell you about our brethren in Thailand. I know I've talked to them before, and I believe Mr. Ames did cover my comments in the World Ahead update last week about our, many of our members in the Mayside area and the work problems that they do run into. And a lot of us really don't realise the pressures that are on some of our brethren. And I do hope we can remember them and more than anything. Their prayers are for God's kingdom to come and they mean it. You know, they have the, the emotion and the desire that very few of us uh, in, in the society in which we live can really appreciate. And uh, as I wrote in that report, seven days a week 
their day starts at 8 o'clock in the morning and goes through to midnight. And it's work, work, work. Now, they don't, fortunately, they don't have to work to midnight every night of the week. That's maybe two or three nights a week. So they start at 8, go through to 12, have a lunch break for an hour, then work from 1 to 5. Now, for those eight hours' work, they get $2, equivalent of $2 um, that uh, you would have in your pocket right now. You probably have a little bit more than that. Well, that's what they get for a day. Then they work overtime from 6 to 10. They get another dollar for that. And then when they work from 12 or 10 to 12, they get 50 cents for that. And sometimes, a couple of times a month, they even work to 2 o'clock in the morning uh, for another 50 cents. And there's not a lot of time left to do your prayer and Bible study. Now, most of the people that work in those factories there, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, they come across the Burma border, they come into Thailand, and uh, they're shoe factories or they're garment factories, and they're often run by Chinese or Thai businessmen, and, or, or uh, Taiwanese businessmen, I should say. And it really, it is, it is closest uh, to, to slave labor that you could uh, ever imagine. And, of course, last year our people went to the feast, and when they came back to go to work, the management said, sorry, you don't have a job here anymore unless you work seven days a week and uh, forget about the Sabbath business. Well, Mr. Memposor um, approached the management of a couple of these places and uh, uh, was able to negotiate um, certain arrangements. But the first thing they did, which, you know, I, 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 I see the incredible... Uh, determination and faith and belief these people have and when they were told they could not work and would not have any employment which means uh, I should say income which means they don't eat um, the first thing they did was they went on a fast and of course one of the scriptures and I want to turn with you to or have you turn with me to Second Chronicles and this is what these people did when they faced the incredible trial that they were dealing with here. Uh, many of you remember the example of King Jehoshaphat when uh, he was being attacked, a problem that was so enormous that there was no way they could deal with it by themselves or in their, on their own strength. And here in Second Chronicles 20 and verse uh, 3, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Well, that's what Memposor and the people there did. The whole church came together at his home, he calls it his video house. That's where they watch the uh, sermons each week. And um, they fasted, and they fasted, and they fasted. And then he went to see the, the management. And, of course, there was no room for negotiation with these guys because there's, there is so much, so many unemployed people there. There is so much labor available that they can pick anybody. And so Memposor said, well, look, I'll tell you what, let's, why don't you turn your computer on and I want you to show you our web page. So the management had a look at it because they thought, oh, you know, there's just a handful of people there and, and they're just uh, uh, playing around with the God and religion and all that sort of thing. And when they saw the web page, the church's website, they, he was very impressed. He said, this is your church. You belong to this. And his whole attitude then changed. And he said, well, we can, we can work something out here. We'll give you the, the, the Sabbath off. Now, keep in mind that those places, the only, the only time that people have time off is Sunday night. They only have to work up to 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon, and then they have all Sunday evening off and then start again Monday morning at 8. 
And so the management said, okay, we'll, um, we'll let you work or let, let you have the uh, Friday night and the Sabbath off. Uh, and you don't have to work Saturday night either, by the way. And uh, so they were very pleased with that. However, he said there is a, there is a penalty. Um, they actually charge them one day's labor, uh, $2.00. Um, in other words, they work all day Sunday for free and, uh, and, and, and because of the penalty of not working on Saturdays. Um, the management then said, well, okay, I can understand that you're sincere and desirous that you want to keep these days. And he ended up, he, he actually gave everybody a travel bag to go to the feast. So uh, um, he was uh, not as hard-hearted as we might think he is. But nevertheless, those people do not have anything. They, they earn their $10 a week they, you know, $12 a week. They lose the $2 as a penalty. They lose another $2 as a tax. And then they pay their tithes on top of that and they do it happily. You sit, they, you sit in front of them and they've got smiles and they hang on every word you say. And it reminds me of the example that the woman who came to Christ and wanted her daughter healed and she says, but master, the dogs even eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And, you know, it is just so gratifying to see the, the excitement that these people have for the truth. And they will take anything. Well, not anything. They've got to take, take the truth, if you know what I mean. And, and, the, and the attitude is just incredible. And I compare that to a situation I ran into recently where we play the telecast in services sometimes for a sermonette. And one gentleman came up to me and said, oh, we don't need to see all that. You know, we've, we've heard God heard this, you know, before with many, many years, and, and we need something else. And, of course, the scriptures that come to mind is what Paul says in t- to Timothy, that in the end times, people will forsake the truth, and they'll have these itching ears, and they want to hear something different. And, uh, and yet, God's truth never changes. And I said to this man, you know, does God ever grow tired of his own word? Does he ever grow tired of the, 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 the words of eternal life here? God's word endures forever. And, uh, and it's just uh, wonderful to see the attitude that some of these people, and as Christ said, some of them will go into God's kingdom even before those who have had access to the truth for so many years. So, but over here in Second Chronicles 20, let's read on a little bit and just see the faith that we all need. Many of us look at these people that I've been describing and feel sorry for them, and yet... When we understand it, brethren, they're not the only ones in slavery. There's a lot of others in, in a slavery that is far worse than what I've described to you regarding the working conditions of some of these people. But just to develop and understand here the faith that God requires from all of us who are going to seek his way. Of course, it talks about in, in verse 7 how God, he says, Are you not our God? who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to your seed, the seed of Abraham, your friend, forever. He said in verse 9, And if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in your presence, for your name is in this house, and we cry unto you in our affliction, then you will hear and help. And that's the encouragement that God gives us. That's the faith and confidence we need to know that whenever any of us have any trials, that we can go to the great God in heaven and he will hear us, just like you heard the prayers of those people who had lost their jobs unless they worked on Saturdays, and they weren't prepared to do that. And then in verse 12 he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? 
For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And, of course, in verse uh, end of verse 15, he says, Be not afraid or dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And those people faced that battle, and for them it was a severe trial. We think just of a couple of dollars is nothing. But to them it's an enormous amount of money. I took them to a restaurant um, right there in Maysot. It's a very nice restaurant. It's the best one in town. It's where the um, crown princess goes and eats when she's in the city. And uh, it costs all of $6 a head for a three-course meal. And yet they had never been there. And never seen, and they, they were just overwhelmed at the, the beauty. It was an open air restaurant, but it was, to them, was a, was a treat of a lifetime to be able to be in something like that. And so often we go to a restaurant and we, we don't even think anything of it, just take it for granted, the incredible blessings that we have around us all the time. But uh, those countries over in the Orient, as we see them coming up, because their wealth and prosperity is being gained in many cases at the expense of its citizens. And uh, the advantage that the government, various governments take of their own people. But uh, as I said, sometimes we can feel sorry for them. But here in Luke chapter 21, Christ talks about another type of slavery that we ourselves need to think about. And we can fall into a trap very easily. Living in the society we do with the blessings that we have. And Christ tells us here, particularly talking about the end time, he says in chapter 21, Luke chapter 21 and down in verse 34, he said, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcome with uh, eating and, 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 or, or gluttony and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that the day come upon you unawares. And we can become so involved in our daily activities and the cares of this life that Christ's return and the end of this age can creep up upon us and we can be totally unaware of it. We can get, because uh, it goes on to say in, in, in the next verse here, for as a snare, you know, a snare is a trap. When you're in a trap, you lose your freedom. When you lose your freedom, you're in slavery. You're being controlled by somebody else. You don't have freedom anymore. And he said, as a snare, it shall come upon them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. And we dwell upon the face of the whole earth. I think we're all living on this planet. And Christ gives us all a warning that the cares of this world can trap us to the point that we can be enslaved by the possessions that we own. You know, we need to ask, do we control them or do they control us? How much time? Do we take in taking care of a lot of these things? How much time? These, these, these people in Thailand, as I said, by the time they get, get, get home at night and they try to get some sleep, they get up in the morning, they spend a little bit of time praying, then they go off to work. And a lot of the other time is spent just staying alive, cooking. They don't have electric stoves or gas cookers. They have to light the, the coal and heat up the water and heat, heat up the food that way. And then... Um, um, I just lost my train of thought about what I was going to say there. But we, in other words, I was saying there that they don't have the time to pray and study as much as they would like. And so Friday evening, they all go over to Mempo Saw's house and 
the four hours that they would normally be working, they go through the scriptures, study the Bible, sing the hymns out of the songbook, and then come back Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, and they start studying and praying again and singing, listening to the, uh, the video sermons. And then on Saturday night, they have more Bible study. It's the only time that they have the chance, really, to do it, that once a week on, on, on the uh, Friday evening and, and the Sabbath. And uh, we need to think about how much time do, do all the gadgets we have take away the precious time from us that we could be devoting to God like we should. You know, I often think about the um, people often ask, you know, are we going to have all these wonderful inventions we have right now in God's kingdom? Well, I don't, I'm not going to give an answer to that necessarily. But I often think about are all these gadgets that we have, you know, cell phones and computers and motor cars, and we need them in our society. I'm not saying we shouldn't have them, and I'm not saying that they're evil or anything like that. But I think about Abraham, the father of the faithful, and all the great patriarchs and the apostles and Christ, those that are going to have responsibilities in God's kingdom. You know, they never drove a car. They never answered a telephone. And I never had a computer. Uh, and you can go down, well, never saw an adding machine or anything like that, never heard of a, a spaceship going to the moon. And yet they have the highest responsibility in God's government, in his kingdom. And they never had any of the technology we had. And what is most and more important to God than anything else is our character. And Satan will take your time away. He will endeavor to enslave you so that you do not have time for God. And if he can do that, then he certainly has won a major victory in our life in having control rather than allowing us allowing God to have control over our life. Over here in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We as God's people need to understand about true freedom and not be enslaved by this society or this world in any way. In verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he goes on to talk about slavery and captivity uh, to Satan and to sin in the next few verses here. Uh, but dropping down to verse 37, he said, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And I was thinking of that gentleman that said, well, I really don't want to listen to the telecast. I don't want to listen to God's word. You know, as, as, as a minister, and many of you are ministers and have been for a long time, you know, I think about that man. I think he would like to have a responsibility in the church. And yet, he has grown tired of hearing the word of God. You know, and I think if Mr. Meredith or Mr. Ames got tired of hearing or preaching the word of God, you know, they wouldn't get out there with the enthusiasm and the excitement and, and want to explain the truth of God's word. And, the, and God's word is something that has been around for eternity. Christ and his father... Is, uh, is, is certainly do not grow tired of their own um, uh, word and, and their way of life. And neither should we, brethren, and neither should we let this world take our mind and our focus and our concentration away from the responsibilities that God says to us as his people. He tells us we had a hunger and thirst after righteousness. And over here in Psalm chapter 2, 
Psalm, I'm not Psalms, I've got the book of Proverbs in chapter 2. Just a couple of verses here that should help us to think about the importance of not just reading God's word, but making sure that we have the time to live it. You know, we are the living church of God, and we have to live God's word. And he says here in chapter 2 of Proverbs, verse 1, My son, if you will receive my words, not just a matter of hearing them or reading them, but taking them in and internalizing them, and hide my commandments with you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as head treasure. You know, I've met a couple of gold prospectors in some of the gold field areas down in Australia, and they've lived in their little shacks, and they've showed me their little vials of gold that they've had there after panning for years and years and years, and they found this little bit, and there's a fever. We talk about that gold fever. And they get it, and they don't give up on it. They never find anything. <laughs> but they just keep looking in the, in the hopes that it's going to be there. And we need to be searching God's word. And as I said before, sometimes the cares of this life can enslave us to the point that it takes our time so that we don't have the time to be searching God's word. And so he says here, if you, if you do this, in verse 5, then you shall understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You know, we have to be doing this. We want to understand the, the, the respect and the proper right fear for God and, and find the, uh, and have that knowledge. And we've got to devote that time. We've got to give God that time. And Satan is going to try and take that away from you and enslave you so that you do not have the time, just like those people in Thailand. They just don't have the time, and yet on the Sabbath, it's 24 hours. They just get their noses into God's word. For the Lord gives wisdom in verse 6, and out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Just dropping down to uh, uh, verse verse 9. He says, if you do this, then shall you understand righteousness and judgment and equity. Yes, every good path. And so how important it is, brethren, that we not be controlled by this world, the things that are in this world. Because if we do, all that is happening to us is that we are putting ourselves into a, into a slavery where we no longer are controlled by God and his word, but controlled by Satan and its world and its, its goods and possessions and so forth. So, brethren, the truth is what makes us free. We get our minds and, and, and hearts into God's word here, make sure we never neglect it and to seek it, as silver and gold, and to hunger and thirst after it, uh, righteousness, as Christ said, and allow God's word to flow through us and be in us, we can develop that character that's going to fit us for eternity to be rulers in God's kingdom. If you get a map out, I would encourage you to do this, a map that shows all of Canada, and you will find that there are some interesting sounding places like Pond Inlet, Cambridge Bay, then you have places like Kugluktuk, uh, Inuvik, uh, Kujuak, Arviat, and then a whole lot of other places that I can't pronounce. 
but you'll see these little tiny towns here, and you can just about be assured that we have somebody taking the magazine from all of those little places. We, we marked a few of them, uh, but didn't even finish the job. It, it's amazing, all of those little places way up there, some of them well above the Arctic Circle, have people who are taking the Tomorrow's World magazine. They pick it up on satellite. And it's just really inspiring. In fact, uh, Mr. Ames was saying that uh, I have the North Pole. I am looking forward to the day when I have the excuse to go to uh, Inovik or Kuglatuk or, or one of those places. But I just cannot quite justify the expense at this time because it is quite expensive. And they do have planes that go there, and that's how you're going to get there. Although in the winter, sometimes you can take the rivers and they, have, uh, they drive on the rivers and that's their highways in the winter. But most of those places, you have to get there uh, by air, aircraft or in the summer, maybe by boat to some of those places. But I, I would really like to take a trip up to one of these places. We do have a member in Kujuak, but it's uh, very expensive to get there and I can't quite justify the expense. But I, I'm looking forward to the day I can. And if I can't, I'll take it out of my own pocket because I, I just love the idea of going where very few... Uh, as we say, white men have gone before. Uh, they're, they're just uh, the, the excitement of going to some place like that is, uh, is very tempting. We do have 10 ministers that are serving in Canada, uh, very spread out, uh, very big job for not a lot of people, but a lot of territory that they have. And I hope that you will pray for our ministry there. Uh, we do not have any ministers in actually living in uh, New Brunswick, although we have Mr. Jim Arnaldo who comes across from the U.S. and serves there. But all that eastern uh, portion of Canada, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, uh, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, Labrador, we do not have a minister in any of those provinces. So Mr. Arnaldo helps out in, in uh, the, uh, the area of, New, of uh, New Brunswick. And then we have to pastor those areas out of Toronto uh, the rest of the time, and it's very difficult to get back there as often as we'd like to. But uh, our brethren are hanging in there, and we hope to have a minister there someday. We have uh, are hiring a new minister, a ministerial trainee, beginning uh, July 1st, Mr. Mark Arsenault, coming over from Quebec. He's bilingual, and that gives us a great deal of flexibility there, and we're looking forward to having him in the office. But that will give us the ability to take care of Ontario a little bit better than we have been able to, but still we, we have areas that we're not very very well capable of taking care of. We have three festival sites this year, and I would encourage any of you who uh, are adventuresome to, to go there. You know, I, I have never understood the fascination with these Florida beach sites. I, uh, no offense to anybody going there, but there is no place in Scripture that says, to the beach I'll lift my eyes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it does say to the hills. And trust me, we have the hills. Uh, Canmore in the Colorado, uh, not Colorado, the, the Canadian Rockies, is one of the most spectacular places on the face of this earth. And I, I see Mr. Dan Glatz back there and uh, maybe one or two others that have been there. But uh, how many of you have ever seen the Canadian Rockies? Uh, just a, Okay. Now, that's more than I, I would have expected. But I'll tell you what, if you've never seen Canmore, which is uh, 20 minutes from, from uh, Banff and Lake Louise, which many people consider the most beautiful places on the face of the earth, uh, you really need to go there. And you need to go there this year because we may not be in Canmore after this because of uh, facilities and negotiations, and we probably won't. So this is, this is the last year there. But now, if Mr. Ellertson were here, he'd want you to go to Western Shore where he's going to be out in Nova Scotia, and that doesn't take second place in too many places. And, of course, we have uh, uh, in Quebec uh, another beautiful uh, area 
uh, and you get the taste of, of France without having to travel the pond. So we'd like to come there. You know, after Israel came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai where God made a covenant with them. And in a great pyrotechnic display, God came down on the mountain and he spoke some very powerful and precious words to those people. We read of how it affected them in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, where the Apostle Paul, going from some tradition or written information that he had there, extra biblical information, made the following statement in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and a blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And I'd like to read verse 21 out of the King James. It says, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Well, to summarize this, God did not speak to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai in a still, small voice. God wanted the attention of the people who were there. And he had their attention at that time. When we go back to Exodus, the 20th chapter, we read the opening words of what he had to say. Exodus 20, I'm sure you are well aware of, is where we find the Ten Commandments. And we read here, beginning verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. When we memorize the Ten Commandments, most of us, we memorize the shortened form. So we start out with the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. And then we might say that we are not to take any images or idols or graven images uh, beside God. And we should not take his name in vain. And in one way, we do ourselves a disservice by not learning the entire part of the commandment. And what I want to talk about this afternoon is the very first commandment, but a portion of that first commandment that we usually skip over. And that is the part that says, I am the eternal, your God. And why did God say those words? And what we're going to find in the time that I have here this afternoon is that God repeats that statement many, many times in Scripture. And what he is saying is, pay attention, listen to me. I used to teach swimming and water polo at our camp in Orr, Minnesota, our summer camp there. And right in the middle of the, this, this bay was the swimming area where we taught. And as you looked out toward the lake, on the right-hand side was canoeing, and on the left-hand side was uh, windsurfing. And when canoeing is doing swamping and they're tipping over canoes and you have people screaming and hollering so that they can learn how to right them in the water, and when the sails of the windsurfers are out there on the bay, it's sometimes hard to keep the attention of our young people who we're telling are going to have to go into this water that's about 60 degrees and teach them how to swim. 
And so they're looking over at canoeing and they're looking at the sails and everything. And I learned a long time ago that if you're going to teach them anything, you have to have their attention. So I would, I, when I noticed that they were watching somebody else, I'd say, I'd say, okay, stop. I said, now, I want you and you and you. I said, right here. This is where I want you to look because this is where it's at. For right now, what's happening over there doesn't matter, but this is where it is and this is where I want you to be looking. Well, you know, in the same way, God was saying this to the people of Israel. I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So listen to me, what I have to say. You shall have no other gods before me. And I think that I can prove that that is, is really what he is, the, the emphasis that he is making there. He wants us to know that he is our God. And I use the expression eternal. Mr. Armstrong used to before us, and, and I think that many of our ministers do use that expression because the, the, the word Lord there, and the original really means the one that was, the one that is, the one that will always will be, the eternal God. And that's very important because God isn't just the God of yesterday or the God that's going to be here in the future, but He is the God of today as well. He is the eternal, our God. And He wants us to understand that. Let's begin by going back to the 6th chapter of Exodus and verse 2. And here God is speaking to Moses. In verse 2, He spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Eternal. Now, it's interesting because we'll see this again and again where He will say, I am the Eternal. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Lord, or Yahweh, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, the Tetragrammaton, I was not known to them. So here are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they never knew this particular name of God. He says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So God introduces himself here as, as the one who keeps covenant or keeps an agreement. He made a covenant with them, and he's going to keep his agreement. And he says, and I have, rem uh, and I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the eternal. You tell them that I am the eternal. You introduce, to, to, uh, you introduce me to them by, by telling them who I am. I am the eternal. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from your, their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You see, that's the essence of the covenant. I will be uh, your God, and you will be my people. When you read the, the Old Covenant, and for that matter, the New Covenant. That's the, the really the heart and the core of it that is there. And so he says, Then you shall know that I am the Eternal, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Eternal. So what he is saying here is, look, you are in bondage, and I am the one who is going to bring you out. I am going to remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God that is going to bring you out of this bondage that you are in. And I will keep my covenant with you. So he wants us to know who it is that is dealing with them. And it is he, the eternal, that is going to bring them out. He is the God of covenant. And he is the Savior, the one who is going to save them from the troubles that they are in. In the 15th chapter of Exodus, 
he introduces himself as the one who heals us. In verse 26, this is where they came to the waters of Mara, and they were bitter, and there was a tree or a branch or whatever that was thrown into the waters, and they were made sweet or drinkable. And he says in verse 26, If you will diligently heed the voice of the Eternal your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep His statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I have brought on the Egyptians. Why? For I am the Eternal who heals you. God wants us to know that He is the one who gives us these blessings. He saves us from our troubles. He is the one that makes a covenant with mankind. He is the one who heals us, as we see here. In the next chapter, he shows us that he is the one that provides for us. In the 16th chapter, we find that the children of Israel were hungry, and they started complaining. And so God gave them quail in the evening, and he gave them manna beginning the next morning for the next 40 years or thereabouts. And so he said uh, in verse 12, he says, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Eternal, your God. Now, in the short time that we've had here, we've seen that expression quite a few times. I mean, it's amazing when you read through the Scriptures how many times God says, Look at me. This is where it's at. I'm the one that is going to save you. I am the one that makes a covenant with you. I am the one that provides for you. I am the one that heals you. Look at to me. I am the standard with which you should govern your lives. We're not to look to any other God, he says, because he is a jealous God. In the 20th chapter, again, of uh, Exodus, where he says in verse 3, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then down in verse 5, he says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God. God has the right to be jealous in that sense. There's a, a carnal jealousy that uh, people have where Johnny is upset because, you know, Ronnie is more favored by Susie. And so Johnny doesn't like Ronnie because of the way Susie looks at him, and so he is jealous, and he would rather have that Susie likes him. Uh, that is a wrong kind of jealousy. But when a parent raises a child and invests, his entire life in that child and brings that child up. And then someone else comes along and tries to influence that child in a different direction. Then a parent has a certain hostility or anger or jealousy, a righteous type of jealousy, uh, because they have that right to be concerned in that way because they are the ones that brought that child into this world and are interested in the, the welfare of that child in the way that nobody else is. Nobody else can be, not to the same degree because nobody else has that much invested. God is the one who has given us everything that knows what's good for us, and He is jealous of us giving His honor to someone else or something else. In the uh, 34th chapter of Exodus, Exodus 34 and verse 12, it says, "...take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going." lest there be a snare in your midst. So God doesn't want us making covenants or agreements with others other than Him. 
I, I don't mean a covenant to buy a house or something, but uh, agreements that involve worship or uh, devotion or, or something along that line where we give our allegiance. He says, But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Eternal, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Or sometimes we say a zealous. But I think that jealous in, in that sense, if we understand in the right way, is, is a reasonable translation. He says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his uh, of his daughters for your sons, and his daughter daughters play the harlot with your uh, with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And so he says, don't get involved with them in this type of way. They just invite you to a feast. They invite you over for dinner, and then you become overly friendly, and then one thing leads to another, and pretty soon you start making agreements with other people who do not have the, the same foundation that you have. Uh, obviously, this, the implications for this will be someone who is not a member of, of God's church, uh, people who have a, a totally a pagan idea of, of who God is. Uh, certainly, God would uh, counsel against that type of thing here. It's very clear that they were not to make this type of covenant or relationship with people who were worshiping pagan gods. Now, in the 14th chapter of Luke, when we go to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is jealous in that way, in a right godly jealousy, where he says here in the 14th chapter and verse 26, a passage that we often read during baptism counseling, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, meaning love to a lesser degree, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This, to me, is one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. He says here that he has to be numero uno, number one. No one else can come before Christ or God. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not love to a lesser degree the, most close, the, uh, the, the closest family relationships that we have, and even including our own life also, he says, you cannot be my disciple. We see that, that same approach here in the New Testament as we do the Old Testament. God is not going to play second fiddle to anyone. He tells us that we are to look to him as our standard for morality. Let's go back to Leviticus, the 18th chapter, and notice this, that he is saying, look to me. I am the standard. I'm the one that you are to look to for what is right and what is wrong. And when it comes to certain areas of morality, in this case, uh, relationships between men and women, or in some cases, other types of relationships, sexual type relationships, he says that he is the one who sets the standard. Let's notice here in Leviticus 18, verse 2, it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, here we go again. I am the eternal, your God. He says, look at me. Look at me. Here it is. I am the eternal, your God. He says, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. In other words, don't look back where you came from. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Sometimes, 
as we grow older, we look back on the good old days. And we think that everything was wonderful in the past. My wife and I came home from Sabbath services one day, and I, I, I remember it was, it was getting late, and uh, we turned on the television there, and, and usually television in our area is pretty terrible. We don't have cable, and we don't have satellite or anything like that. We just get whatever we get with our rabbit ears, and so uh, we don't have a lot of uh, opportunity to, to find something too interesting, but there's a station that has on Saturday nights old movies, and here was one with Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. I'm not sure how old this movie is, but it's got to be 40 years old at least. And I can't even remember the name of it, and I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched a little bit of it there for a few minutes. And I was, I was shocked because I thought, this is pretty racy. I, I, I grant you, it won't match what we see today. But if we think that everything was wonderful back there, it wasn't. It wasn't always so wonderful. I, I could go into a long description of what I saw there, but she was, you know, she was in France. That's a good place to be, Mr. Parting. She was in France and called before a judge. And so uh, I think it was Jane Mansfield. I, I couldn't can, can remember one of the two. Jane. And, and, and she's got this fur coat on, full-length fur coat. And, of course, it kind of opens up in the front. She throws her leg over there. And, well, that, that was okay. But then all of a sudden she, she throws this thing off, and she's dressed with next to nothing, and she starts dancing around, and the jurors and the judge and everybody is... You know, she's trying to get off the hook or whatever it is. And so I, I thought, wow, that, I'll bet that movie's 50 years old. <laughs> but it was pretty racy. And so he's saying, don't look back to where you came from, because so often we look to our childhood and we think that that was the kingdom of God on this earth, and it wasn't. Our memory sometimes fails us. And... He's saying, don't look back from where I brought you out of. And, of course, in a spiritual sense, we're not to look back into the world that we once came out of before we came into God's truth. Obviously, that's the major implication here uh, for us. Neither are we to, to look to this new land and, and look at uh, uh, you know, a new world, not, not in the church, but outside of the church, anything outside the church, as a standard by which we make judgments. He says, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinance and walk in them. I am the eternal, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, verse 5, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the eternal. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the eternal. I am the standard. I'm the one who determines what is a right relationship and what is a wrong relationship. We don't vote on it. We don't take a public opinion poll as to what is right and good and appropriate. He says, I am the standard. I am the eternal, your God. Look here. This is where it is, he's saying. And then he goes on to show what is a wrong relationship with a near of kin. And then he gets into other kinds of relationships that are inappropriate. Uh, verse 19, it says, And you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, verse 20, You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife, that's adultery, to defile yourself with her. And yet we live in a world where adultery is very common, very, very common. And then in verse um, 21, he talks about uh, passing through the fire to Molech. Uh, they were not allowed their, their children to pass through the fire to Molech, nor profane the name of, of your God. I am the eternal. Then verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, from time to time, we have to bring this out. Why? Well, because our children go to schools where they have books that Johnny has two mommies and 
Julie has two daddies and this type of thing. And they are being fed a steady diet of tolerance that we should be non-judgmental. And if you say that something is an abomination, it is wrong, then you are being judgmental. And I remember a minister years ago that used to point out that sometimes you can be so broad-minded that you become shallow. It's like a river. There's a French broad river up here, up by Asheville, North Carolina. It's quite broad there and in many places, but it's also very shallow. And we should not be shallow in our thinking. And I made some statements about this one time up in a congregation in Canada, and one reason I did it, it fit in with the sermon, but there were a couple young ladies there that I hadn't seen before, and I see they were visibly upset by the Scriptures there and found out later that they were two lesbians. There are so many people today who, who want to use the world as their standard, as though we are old-fashioned because we look to God, the Eternal, the One who always was and is today and always will be as the One who sets the standard. He says, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. And that's something that is, is disgusting, but it's probably going to become more common as we get toward the end. That may sound strange, but who would have ever thought we'd be where we are today in terms of morality? Uh, and it goes on with that. But let's, let's skip over some of that and go down to verse 30 where it says, Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the eternal your God. I am the one who determines what is right morality and what is wrong. In the 11th chapter of Leviticus, we see that God is one who defines what is clean and unclean. We also see in other scriptures that he defines what is holy and what is unholy. Let's go back to Leviticus 11 again. And we're familiar with this because this is where the laws of clean and unclean meats are found. And toward the end of this chapter in verse 44, he says, For I am the eternal your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves or separate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Eternal who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Remember who I am. Don't forget. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Verse 46, This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish them or between them, the, the clean and the unclean, and between the animal that shall not be eaten or that may not be eaten and the animal that you may... Let me try that again. <laughs> Verse 47. To distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Now, people come up with all kinds of ideas on this. I, um, uh, my, I came up on my own. My parents were not in the church, and I was a teenager when God first began working with me. And so my father, growing up on an Iowa farm or Nebraska farm, a little bit of both, uh, raising hogs, uh, was very fond of hogs. And I can still remember hearing, I don't know how many times, and to this day he, he reminds me of this because every once in a while a restaurant or any number of things, diet comes up, and well, we used to always say that you never ate pigs in months that didn't have an R in them, uh, such as uh, May, June, July, August, the, the, the warm months, because 
they spoil a bit faster. So you only eat them during the cooler months of September, October, November, December, January, uh, February, March, April. See, so it was real simple. That was his rule of thumb about eating pigs. <laughs> now, God says, don't look to ours <laughs> as to what is a standard of, of conduct here. He says, look at me right here. Here's where it's at. This is, this is where you are to look for your standard. I'm reminded of, well, I, I should tell this on Mr. Uh, Mr. League. Uh, he, he was explaining to us yesterday that, uh, that there's a difference in the way that a, a northerner and a southerner begins a story. That a northerner starts out uh, once upon a time, or was that how it was, once upon a time, and a southerner says, you ain't going to believe this. <laughs> So once upon a time, in uh, a northern state, there was a young man by the name of Johnny. And you ain't going to believe this, but it's true. And Johnny was his name. And he went to school one day, and he was eating lunch. He was 10 years old, and he was sitting down to his lunch, and his teacher noticed that he wasn't eating his hot dog. And she asked him, she said, Johnny, uh, are you not feeling well? And he said, no, he was feeling fine. She said, well, why aren't you eating your hot dog? And he said, well because it's made of pork. And she said, well, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, pork has worms in it. His parents had taught him well. And she said, oh, no, Johnny. She said, that's okay because when you cook the, the pork, it kills the worms. And he said, well, I understand that, but I don't like eating dead worms. <laughs> now, out of the mouth of babes, how do you, how, how, what do you say after that? That's a true story. You see, we don't set the standard by how many dead worms we have or how many R's are in the, 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 you know, the, the, the months of the year. God says, these are the standards. This is what is clean. This is what is unclean. This is what is holy. This is what is unholy. Uh, he is the one that determines those things. In the 23rd chapter of Leviticus... He, he tells us what is holy time and what is not. You see, we don't determine it by the pagans. Uh, these are things that all of us know. I'm not saying anything here that's, that's real revolutionary. But what I am trying to point out here is that God really wants us to look at Him. He, he, he's saying, here's where it is. Not over here. Not what this man's opinion is, not what somebody else's opinion is, not what everybody votes on or public uh, discussion has that, that determines what is judgmental or not judgmental, whatever. God wants us to look to Him as a standard in everything that we do. And so here in Leviticus 23, He begins in uh, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The Feast of the Eternal. Of their eternal feast. They're his feast, the eternal's feast. And once he set them up, he expects us to keep them. They're not out of date today, as we all know. I'm, not, I'm preaching to the choir on this. I understand. Uh, the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And then he starts out with the weekly Sabbath and the other days. You know what I'm finding today in the church of God is that there are a lot of people that, that know that the weekly Sabbath is right. And they will make a certain amount of effort to keep the weekly Sabbath. 
But when it comes to God's annual festivals, you see, these are all feasts. One is weekly, but then he says, uh, beginning in in verse uh, 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, commanded assemblies, uh, something that we've been summoned to, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So there are different times in the year when these come up, and he shows that these are the days we are to keep. But what I find is there's, I think it's a real spirit of Laodicea out here, where people will keep the weekly Sabbath, but when it comes to these annual festivals, well, they've got to go to work, they've got classes, they've got this or that or something else, and they're unwilling to make that commitment. You know, it's very inspiring to hear what Mr. Tyler was saying here about our our people over there in, in Thailand and Burma and those areas. We are so spoiled in our Western world. And we think it's so difficult we might lose a job or we might have to take a class over again. And yet these people are working for next to nothing in our, you know, the way that we look at it. They've got so much to lose and yet they'll take a stand to keep the Sabbath and the holy days. And it just, it makes me sick to think of what what people are going to go through someday because they couldn't make the hard decisions today. We are living in the age of Laodicea. And Laodicea is going to pay a very heavy price. And the symptoms of it are all around us. Because people take their eyes off God. They don't see the eternal as as God. They, They give lip service, but when it comes to actions, they're just not there. We see time and again people coming to church, but they just don't have that commitment to really stick with it. There's uh, some don't stick with it at all, but others compromise here or there. Uh, I, I heard the other day of uh, someone who, uh, I forget whether they came to us or someplace else, because uh, a minister in one of these, these other groups out there uh, was working part-time on the Sabbath and calling Church of God, but working part-time on the Sabbath. We see more and more compromise. And unfortunately, it is affecting us even in the Church of God that sometimes, among some, not all, because we have a lot of very zealous people, zealous toward God, but we have others who are looking elsewhere to make their decisions. Their boss says, well, you've got to work or lose this job, and so they don't have the faith. And they say, well, they take their eyes off God, and they say, well, the boss says this, so I, I have to do this. And most of the time, uh, it's not nearly as serious as what we have in some of these other countries that where it's, it's much more difficult than our Western world where we sit here uh, pretty, pretty well fed and pretty well taken care of. And there are always social programs that pick up the slack even when we get fired. So God, God's not going to sit back and, and take second fiddle to anyone, but let's notice over here in Leviticus 23 again, uh, just a little bit later, where he says in verse uh, 43, he says, that your generations, this is the keeping the feast of tabernacles, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. Why does God keep repeating that? Why does he say over and over again, he'll, he'll give an instruction and he says, I am the eternal, your God. He's saying, I'm the standard. I'm the one that makes the decision as to what is right and what is wrong, what is correct behavior and what is not, what is holy, what is unholy, what is clean, what is unclean, what is moral and what is immoral. That's what God is saying. He's making it very clear to us there. 
He is the one that defines right social customs. God does not leave it up to us to define what is right in terms of social customs. For example, in Deuteronomy 14, uh, in certain social customs, I don't mean everything. He doesn't define everything down to the last degree, but he does make some statements that are pretty powerful. In Deuteronomy 14, it says, You are the children of the eternal your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the eternal your God, and the eternal has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, God does not want us to be like the rest of the world. Now, we could take this in a wrong way and begin to get all puffed up and thinking how great we are. And that's not what God wants us to do. But on the other hand, do we not want to be God's special treasure? And do we not want to be separate from this insane world that is around us? And yet it's so easy for us to get caught up in the customs of this world. Uh, Cuttings of the flesh. Well, for the dead, but we have young girls who slash their arms, cut themselves with razors and all kinds of things. We've even seen this at our summer camp. Not a lot of it, but we've seen it. We've been introduced to some of that. Thankfully, not the real dangerous uh, type where they're really gashing themselves, but actually you know, more scratching than, than cutting. But we've actually seen a little bit of that. Not a lot, but a little bit. And from everything that I've read on the subject, what you have there is a situation where people are so alienated from mom and dad that it's the only way they have feelings anymore. That mom is working, dad is working, they don't have time for them, everybody's eating at different times, all these different problems, they're just alienated, and it's the only way that they have of expressing themselves or feeling anything. There are many causes, I'm sure, but those are some things I've read on the subject. And uh, it's a symptom of the age in which we live. And I'll read a little bit about that just a little bit here in a few minutes. Uh, Let's notice over in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 and verse 27. Here he says, You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard, And I'm not sure that we understand all of those things, but some think it goes back to the Egyptian customs of the little goatees that they had and and then around the head and kind of a solar symbol of the solar or the sun. Uh, But the parts that we do understand more clearly are found in verse 28. It says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the eternal. Notice he puts that there again. I am the eternal. Now, we're coming to a time where... Uh, We are in a time where tattooing is very, very popular. And it's not just a little tattoo here and there. You find people that their whole body is tattooed. And we're facing this, and we're going to have to face this question more and more as time goes by. And let me say here so that nobody misunderstands. uh, What I'm saying right now, first of all, is that you and I, who understand God's truth need to allow God to determine the standards by which we conduct ourselves in this world, such as things like tattoos. We should not. We have no excuse. We know. Our children know this. We should teach them. But we're going to have more and more people with all these markings on them that come into God's church. And there's a whole lot of difference between me speaking on the subject to you who are God's people who understand the truth and everything and someone who's coming in for the first time who's already made these mistakes. 
And we need to be very sensitive to the fact that a person can't just take his skin off or undo all the things that he's done to his body. And nor should we make a person uh, feel guilty about things that, that he has no control over at this point in time or run somebody off in this category because we're going to have a lot of people with a lot of tattoos come into God's church before the end of this age. And we have to show them kindness and mercy and tolerance, the right kind of tolerance. And as Mr. Meredith has said so many times, get the big picture and understand what's really important. But at the same time, we do not want to say because so-and-so has come into the church with these things that therefore all these things are okay and so we should just let down and open up the floodgates for our own children. There's a difference there. And we ought to hold the standard up here for our young people. And then if they do disappoint us, we'll, we'll deal with that in mercy and, and kindness and judgment, but whatever however we have to deal with it. But we need to set the standard up, the bar up here high, because God says, I am the eternal your God. I'm the one that determines these things. And you know this passage here, if you read the commentaries, uh, for example, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that uh, he says, it may appear surprising that Moses should condescend to such minutiae as that of regulating the fashion of the hair and the beard, matters which do not usually occupy the attention of the legislator and which appear widely remote from the provinces either of a government or of a religion. A strong presumption, therefore, arises that he had it in view by uh, these regulations to combat some superstitious practices of the Egyptians. Well, we need to get the big picture of what is behind all of these things, and we need to understand where our society is going. I have a publication here called Imprimis. Uh, it's about a million and a quarter uh, readers. Uh, it comes out of Hillsdale College out of Michigan, uh, it's, it's a free publication, but somebody has to send your name in for you uh, to receive it. But it gives uh, records of speeches that have been given by famous individuals. And this one is by uh, Rebecca Haglin, who is a, a very well-known conservative writer. Uh, she wrote a, a book called um, uh, Home Invasion, Protecting Your Family in a Culture That's Gone Stark Raving Mad. And, and that's where we are, a culture that's gone stark raving mad where people poke themselves and put things all over their bodies and ways and places that you can't even imagine. And she talks about the influences of our culture, and she says, but what's the harm? Isn't this just entertainment? Well, let's see. Corporations spend billions of dollars every year on advertising. Why? Because they know that media affects behavior. In other words, they want a return on their advertising. Today's youth are the most marketed to generation in the history of the world. Our kids are spending an estimated 200 billion, that's 2,000 million, 200 billion dollars a year on trinkets and toys and clothes and media. Marketing executives at MTV and other youth-oriented media do not brag about how they know what kids want, but about how they have learned to manipulate the teenage mind. Now, for those of you who are teenagers, I think that ought to make you mad. That there's some pot-bellied 60-year-old out here with balding head who doesn't care one whit for you, and he is trying to separate you from your parents and from your money. And he is sitting back, smiling and happy, and bragging about how he's able to manipulate your mind because they've learned how to do it. And they study and they test 
uh, these styles out. And they are selling a lifestyle to our children that robs them of their innocence and their best futures and capitalizes on the natural raging hormones that mark the teen years. Instead of helping channel that energy into worthwhile activities and, of course, turning children to their parents, they turn them away from their parents, the media fuels the flames in an effort to keep them tuned, tuned into the programming. These marketers are teaching our young girls that their lives are all about their sexual power and our young boys that life is all about who can be more crudely funny or irresponsible. And boy, is that ever true. And we see that influence even in our kids at camp. Our young boys want to be crude. They want to be cool. They don't want to do well in school. They just want to be crude and cool. And our young girls want to flaunt whatever they've got. Sexual activity is expected and has no consequences, and yet there are serious consequences. Civility does not exist, and the only brand of respect that's taught is a twisted brand of self-respect. The harm, then, is that in addition to the obvious degradation of our humanity, to the destruction of common decency and morality, and to the virtual death of civility, our children are paying a terrible price with their bodies, their emotions, and their futures. They are. They're paying a, a horrible price uh, with, with these things that they're being sold. <clears throat> a September 2004 report in the medical journal Pediatrics reveals that children who watch a lot of sexualized television have twice the rate of sexual activity as teens who don't. One out of three teenage girls will become pregnant at least one time before she is 19 years old giving the U.S. the highest teen pregnancy rate of any industrialized Western world. Now get this, 25% of sexually active teenagers will contract a sexually transmitted disease that they will carry with them the rest of their lives. One of the things that our young people are getting into now is, is uh, poker. You notice that poker is the big thing on television. And the chance of winning some of these big tournaments is pretty slim. The chance of winning the lottery is astronomical. But there are people who believe that the odds are good enough, one in 10 million or whatever the odds are, maybe one in 125 million, but the odds are good enough that I'm willing to give up my money to try to win. Well, if the odds are good enough at one in whatever that number is of winning the lottery, would you want to trust your future one chance in four? that you would carry with you a disease that you could never get rid of and that you're going to have to explain someday to a potential future husband or wife and hope that that potential future husband or wife understands. You know, these are the things that, that our young people need to know, that they need to think about. The 25% will carry those things with them for the rest of their lives. Half the new STD cases in this country every year are young people between 15 and 24, and it's pot-bellied, bald-headed 60-year-olds who are promoting this stuff. And yet parents who love us and bring us into the world don't seem to get much respect. Have you ever heard of cutting, she writes? It's a heartbreaking phenomenon of self-mutilation. Now common in middle schools across the country, our teenage daughters are using razor blades and knives to make slashes in their arms just so they can feel alive. Are we crazy? Has our culture gone stark, raving, mad? Well, I think the answer is yes. Obviously, it is yes. Because there is a different standard than God's standard. 
and too many people are tuning in to man's ways instead of God's ways. Instead of looking at God as a standard for how we comb our hair, how we, uh, you know, what we put on our, our bodies, uh, we, we look elsewhere. We look to other standards. The opening words of the Ten Commandments tell us, I am the eternal, your God. And I haven't even come close to reading all the scriptures that repeat that over and over again. But here God is telling us that it is not man, not human custom, not man-made regulations, not what feels good or tastes good, not anything or anyone in this world that determines right from wrong, good from evil, holy from unholy, clean from unclean. What he is saying is that he alone is the standard. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 tells us, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, that that is the first and the great commandment. Brethren, if we truly, if this truly is our frame of mind, that we love God with all of our heart, that we see Him as a standard by which we determine right and wrong behavior, if we truly do look to Him and look to Him in faith and confidence, knowing that His way is right, if that is truly our frame of mind, if it is a burning desire within us to love and to serve God with all our heart, our mind, and our being, we need to think about these things. We need to meditate on these things and ask ourselves the question, why do I do what I do? Who am I really following? I'm not talking here about judging new people who come into our midst. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. And, and Please, nobody misunderstand that. We, we're going to have people who are wounded and bruised and damaged physically, and their scars are going to show. And we need to treat them with all the love and the kindness and respect we can. But at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, why do I do the things I do? What customs am I following? Am I looking to Jesus Christ and God the Father? Am I looking eyeball to eyeball with what he wants? Or am I looking someplace else? So we should ask ourselves who we are following. And then we should turn to God in every aspect of life and look to him as the one who controls or determines the standard of our conduct.